This Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast is brought to you by RSA Security. RSA offers business-driven security solutions that provide organizations with a unified approach to managing digital risk that hinges on integrated visibility, automated insights, and coordinated actions. RSA solutions are designed to effectively detect and respond to advanced attacks, manage user access control, and reduce business risk, fraud, and cybercrime. RSA protects millions of users around the world and helps more than 90% of the Fortune 500 companies thrive and continuously adapt to transformational change. For more information, visit rsa.com. Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this Spotlight episode of the podcast, the introduction of doubt is all you need, right? Because now we're just going to fight about, is the, is the result accurate at all, let alone somebody could be winning by landslide. But, but they'll introduce doubt that, that alleviates uh, the ability to move forward and make a decision. With just over two months until the 2020 presidential election in the United States, campaigns are entering the final stretch as states and local governments prepare for the novel challenge of holding a national election amidst a global pandemic. Lurking in the background, the specter of interference and manipulation of the election via targeted disinformation campaigns like those Russia used during the 2016 campaign or through outright attacks on elections infrastructure. Securing an election that takes place over weeks or even months across tens of thousands of counties, towns, and cities, each using a slightly different mix of technology and process, may be an impossible task. But that's not necessarily what's called for, either. Like large organizations who must contend with a myriad of threats, security experts say that elections officials in the U.S. would do well to adopt a risk-based approach to election security, focusing their staff and resources in the communities and on the systems that are most critical to the outcome of the election. What does such an approach look like? To find out, we invited two seasoned security professionals with deep experience in cyber threats targeting the public sector into the Security Ledger studio. Robert Carey is the vice president and general manager of Global Public Sector Solutions at RSA. He retired from the Department of Defense in 2014 after more than 31 years of distinguished service and after serving three and a half years as the Department of Defense's principal deputy chief information officer. Also with us for this podcast is Sam Curry, the chief security officer of the firm Cyber Reason. To start off our conversation with a November presidential election just weeks away, I asked Rob and Sam what they imagined the next few weeks would bring. My name is Sam Curry. I'm the chief security officer for Cyber Reason and a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute. And my name is Rob Carey, and I run the global public sector solutions business for RSA Security. And uh, in a past life, I was a uh, former federal CIO. Thank you both, and welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. I think I've had you both on individually, but never together. So this is great. Always, always good to come back and have a chat. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, it's kind of mid-August, and uh, everybody's thoughts and attention are turning to the upcoming presidential election. One of the big concerns this year, as in past years, is um, you know cyber tampering with election infrastructure. Uh, some kind of em- effort to influence maybe the outcome of the election. 
I'd ask for each of you to sort of give me your thoughts on the the relative risks this year of election hacking and, and what, what your gut says about um, what 2020 is going to bring to us. You know, it's a very good question. And, and I think uh, we've already seen the rumblings of uncertainty, right, surrounding the outcome. And a fundamental of that is COVID, you know, our, our pandemic has caused us to change the platform upon which we implement our vote uh, and cast our ballots, uh, whether it's in person or it's, or it's via mail. And, and, you know, the American citizen really demands confidence that their vote is submitted and it is submitted securely so that the electoral process can continue, right, can, can produce uh, a winner. Uh, whoever that may be, and then the peaceful, you know, change of authority or continuation of authority on on January 21st. So, I think the risks that that come about are really further break that problem down into there are cyber-based risks and there are process-based risks, right? And and so the the, the cyber-based risks we've already seen from. Our last election and some of the midterm elections, the information warfare campaigns by some of our adversaries being highly successful, right? Um, People see things on the internet and they believe them. The common person, the normal person out there wouldn't know a modified uh, website, the website. The basis of your understanding of what's going on is being shifted, which then introduces uncertainty about the outcome. Sam, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Uh, I'll paraphrase Winston Churchill, who quipped uh, that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other ones. <laughs> um, and, and But this is where it gets tested, right? It's we the people, and this is how something as powerful and, and amazing as the United States chooses how the policies will be formed for the next four years. It's how can you resist that as a target? Um, let's not forget that back in... Uh, uh, in the Cold War, there were, you know, the nation states had propaganda campaigns. They they sought to influence elections at the polls physically, um, and that fraud's been going on even domestically, uh, you know, for hundreds of years here in the U.S. and elsewhere. Now, the thing we all expected, of course, with a connected digital world, was that uh, democracy would be supported. Our values seem to say that this is an inevitable thing. Um, that uh, will become more open, more transparent, and democracy will be reinforced, and that information ubiquity will make us all more intelligent and more informed. But the truth of the matter, there's nothing inherently good or bad about the tech. And so if you're a bad guy out there right now, and, I'm, and I use the term terribly, right? I mean, if you're a political interest, a hacker, a terrorist, a, a nation state, a, even a special interest group, the temptation is enormous to use the anonymity of the internet to get effect at scale. And so every election we've seen has seen an increase in sort of call it cyber temperature. And I, and I love how you called out the fact that COVID-19 is an external factor changing the way we do it anyway. Because the, the big concern I have, I'm, I'm not actually concerned generally about cyber pearl harbors and things. I feel like we respond to those sorts of existential threats well as a society. My, my big concern is undermining the, in the integrity of the election, um, affecting the processes of the, of the democracy that, 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 this is really critical for how we work and operate as a thing called the United States. And it is it will be at risk in 2020. But um, my 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 big takeaway, and I, and I hate to put something big up front like this, but maybe we can build on it, is we should be making very as few changes as we can, given we have to make some big ones to deal with COVID. 
And it's, it's not the time for huge social experiments. It's time to reinforce the way, you know, the post office works. It, it, it sounds boring, but this is critical. And because frankly, everyone has budgets who wants to influence the government for the next four years, has budgets and re- tools and resources that are mature, and they're going to bring them to bear. And they're going to bring, we can talk about how, you know, infrastructure and application and propaganda and enfranchisement, like we can talk about how that will happen. But I think it's absolutely critical that we change as little as possible and, and have as much faith in the outcome of the election, no matter how it turns out as possible. Hmm. One of the kind of core problems, one of the root problems, I think, with many of these disinformation campaigns, and Rob, I think you're right. If you look at 2016, um, it certainly wasn't the case that uh, there were widespread reports of tampering with vote infrastructure. It was more these, um, you know, social media influence campaigns and, you know, um, bots and, and fake sites and fake groups and so on. One of the underlying issues there, and I think that's still a problem, is is just information and media literacy that people really don't, many people don't understand the difference between a actual reported story by a credible news source and some incendiary thing on chowderheads.com or whatever that is circulating. I made that up in my opinion. My apologies to the real chowderheads.com site, but you see these links and it's like, what is that? That's not a news site. But for many people, there is no difference between the Washington Post, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and, you know, get chowderheads.com that showed up in my newsfeed and they just circulated around like it's, you know, like it's a deeply reported investigative oh, yeah. source of information. Well, it's this confirmation bias. It's echo chambers. And the word yeah. fake news, I think, has hurt us. I like how the British have very formally said there's this thing called misinformation or disinformation. Let's get specific. These are propaganda tools. The amazing thing is that we have all drifted over the course of the last, I'll say decade, so we even disentangle it from the 2016 election, we've drifted to have different sources of trust. In other words, one person likes Fox News, another likes MSNBC, somebody likes to get their their, their learning online. And, and there's some big implications of that, that people will cultivate resources, just like they cultivate a botnet, they'll, they'll cultivate social media resources and news networks with legitimate news and rebroadcast. So, or even interest. Hey, you know, if somebody determines that in a particular city, there will be a swing vote and a class of voters um, in the, you know, middle-class voters, let's, let's start something like a cooking interest and recipe club. And then that can be used on the day of the election to say, Hey, you know, some reporters, some people were reported as sick at the local, Uh, polling station and with a new mutant version of COVID-19 don't go in tomorrow. And that group has now effectively been tipped just enough to get an extra thousand. Yeah, yeah, it's weaponized, right? And and, and so to some extent, this is combined now with the fact we have a common watering hole around COVID-19. So the whole who do we trust? And it's almost um, we need to have new cyber civic literacy, right? It's we used to have civic, you know, civics courses and um, cyber is now grossly underappreciated, but this whole plane of of what's happening in social media and it, and in, and and it's really memes, not like pictures, but mimetically, what's happening with idea sharing and confirmation bias and other biases. There are there's real thought and psychology behind how people are being abused as groups and taken advantage of. You know, uh, Sam, you're spot on. The use of the internet compared to let's say 25 years ago, before the internet, you know, we got our election information from the evening news or the late night news or the newspaper, right? Three sources, generally reasonably credible. 
Um, and now there's an explosion of electronic means to gather any information that might shift your psyche, right? the reader's psyche. And so that information is able to be modified, right? Uh, almost at will. And, and that's the part that, you know, not saying people don't understand that, but when people are on social media sites and, and they are picking up memes and other things as fact, uh, it tends to alter uh, where they go that day, what they do that day, what they might have for lunch, you know. Uh, it, so we're there and, and, and we're in this everything over mobile society, right? So we stare at our smartphones um, almost hours and hours a day. So as you're standing in the polling line, you may be staring at your smartphone, right? You could be influenced right before you walk in with information that may or may not be accurate. And that's a, that is one of the risks. You're listening to a Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast. This Spotlight podcast is sponsored by RSA Security. And, and I think as Sam, you know, kind of suggested as well, you know, many of these groups that are behind these, whether they're, um, you know, kind of dark money groups or, uh, you know, nation state actors or, or campaigns themselves are playing a long game. So like Sam said, you know, they, they might they might set up a, a presence online, a, a network of fake accounts or a group or what have you. That seems completely innocuous, and and their play is going to be at you know in the November first to to third window, and they might be utterly indistinguishable from you know other accounts until then. And it's this very, I mean, I've certainly seen many, many, as I'm sure you guys have, um, sock puppet accounts on Facebook that you know aren't don't seem to be doing much. You know, they're kind of they're kind of churning out either left left wing or right wing. Um, stories, you know, at a, at a pretty, pretty regular cadence, but, you know, don't seem to be pushing disinformation per se. They're just kind of engaging in the conversation and, and building networks of friends. But my sense is these are going to become activated at some point with some very specific information or some specific As we are goal. It's out, just not clear right? yet what that is. We're just is. starting to groom the battlefield, if you will, or groom the, the population for the messages which are registering and which are not, and as you get closer, you change your messaging. Yeah, uh, like we, we look, guys. Even before we had the internet, we would see like uh, like honestly some genocides, like 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 in Germany and in Rwanda, people would be mobilized at scale with codes, and these codes can exist online as well. And and if you want the power of a message, I'll give you a positive one in retrospect, like Walesa in um, in Poland got half an hour of television and it led to the solidarity movement basically overturning the Polish Communist Party in 1989 from half an hour of television at the right time, right? And so when people get this stuff through a source of authority, which arguably almost anything could be now, if it's delivering value to you in a way that, that passes your sniff test, then when you're standing in the polls, as you said, like waiting to go in with your mask on six feet in between and you're reading this article, you go into the room, that, if that message was injected to that point, it is, for all intents and purposes, the biggest influence on you right then. Not the, not the evening news, as you put it, and not the newspaper. So when we talk about election security, I feel often in the, in the information security field that people's minds immediately go to DRE, direct record electronic uh, voting machines, and, uh, and maybe voting infrastructure. We kind of take it as a um, IT security, IT asset security 
problem. And, and I don't think conferences have helped by having, you know, the focus be on hacking voting machines for God knows, I don't know, 15 years now. I kind of feel like that's a disservice these days to even be really talking about that as opposed to all these other things we're talking about. But I'd be interested in your thoughts. I mean, what should the information security community be talking about uh, with regard to election security rather than specifically voting security? I still think there's a lot of important work to be done because people still build bad voting machines, right? I mean, they still build things that don't have an accountability afterwards. Or as we saw in the Iowa caucuses, there's a new app rolls out to do something. Uh, and it hasn't been fully tested, right? I mean, that's and and then yeah. and then you get the denial of service on the phone pools. It's the backup service because somebody posted it to four chan, and you've got some cyber swarming going on. But um, uh, in, in the end, everything around that machine is as important, if not more so. Like I, I, I love when people say, "Hey, I found this great crypto. Nothing can break it." I'm like, "Yeah, you found a, a way to secure a pipe from A to B, but A isn't secure and B isn't secure. So the pipe can be abused by the attacker. So let's assume." That the if we assume the machine is safe and the voting rolls are safe, very worthwhile looking into it and look at the photo negative. What could be done around it? Um, we've spent a lot of time and uh, in, an, in a non-commercial way doing something called Operation Blackout where we game this with law enforcement. We, we create a red team and a blue team and we create a white team to act as a, as a sort of game master slash uh, you know, escalation point for either team. But the point is that until you, 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 you practice it and you should use peacetime to practice, then you're not you don't know how the 911 service could be used or the could be abused and you don't know how a, um, a social media botnet could be used and abused and if a if a party had as a goal to get a result or to affect the integrity of the election and create a scandal for the next 2 years theoretically they could do it quite simply if they were coordinated non target and so the rest of the system has to be tested as well Rob, you were actually a CIO, though, so I actually want to hear what you were saying, what you think of this. It's interesting, uh, Sam, that you mentioned when I was in government, I, I got called down to the DOD counsel's office, which I thought, oh, boy, I'm in trouble. Um, and, and, and they were meeting with a firm who wanted to ensure that we did not implement electronic voting for the military, uh, for deployed troops, you know, because it's all mail-in. And, and so I sat there and, and I'm watching the attorneys and I'm the IT guy, quote unquote, I'm the IT guy. And it was, it was a very interesting conversation about why there were so many hiccups in that process from their point of view. And so when I look at the process from this year, from November 3rd to, to January 21st, right, and whether the, the ballots are, are coming in via mail, like Nevada, like Oregon, several five or six states, I think, have said, hey, we're doing this all by mail. And, and now the postal service, and then there's a tally. And, and so we go from a manual process. At some point, this, this result or this draft result hits a network, right? We're starting to create a digital representation of the result. Those process linkages do create uncertainty. But at some point, every one of these processes is digitized. So that, sh that surety of that vote is really where this starts to get important. And, and, and as Sam, I think, said earlier, the introduction of doubt is all you need, right? Because now we're just going to fight about is the, is the result accurate at all, let alone somebody could be winning by landslide. But, but they'll introduce doubt that, that alleviates uh, the ability to move forward and make a decision, right? Because we are so patently used to the decision making itself. And today, come so far forward that 
we have to make sure that I think Sam said this, the present set of processes need to be exercised and validated that they are still um, able to execute their function with certainty or sufficient certainty to support the, the democracy and the expectations of the American citizens. So, so I, I can promise you that after the election, somebody will do a cluster bias. They're going to draw a circle around a set of results and say, see, there's a conspiracy. It's going to happen. Uh, now, the question is, how do we undermine the validity of that perspective? How do we make it so that less people are saying, not my president, whoever it is, and less people are saying this bias exists instead of more? If we do the integrity right, there'll be quiet voices, or at least not as loud. If we do it wrong, they're going to be deafening. So, so you guys are both information security professionals. You know from your conversations with your customers and, and messaging and so on right now that everybody talks about taking risk-based approach to security, right? Stop throwing money at problems that you know are not worth the money you're throwing at them and start focusing resources and attention where it, it matters, right? On the assets and data that matter, on the processes and technologies that actually are going to make a difference in reducing your risk. So with election security, um, it strikes me that everybody kind of runs around with their hair on fire. You know, one minute we're talking about DRE voting machines and, and, and then, you know, state infrastructure and then local polling. And then, you know, I mean, it's just it's everything all at once. But so if we were to take an, a, a risk based approach to this problem, what would that look like in terms of uh, marshalling the resources of you know the federal and state governments to make a difference where it makes it's going to make the most you know sense. Look, uh, I think taking a risk-based approach, we could we could describe it as deal with the big rocks first, and and so in other words, let's do a risk ranking, and we'll try to really burn down the big risks. The problem is it's dynamic, right? There's no risk registry that's static. The world isn't the same. It's changing constantly. The bad guys are developing and evolving. In fact, it's an adaptive war. It's really, in InfoSec, it's a, uh, his or her on a, you know, rate of innovation on attack versus his or her rate of innovation on defense. So how do you make sure you have the fastest rate of innovation? So the implication, I think, long term of this is there's a pace of innovation in electoral processes that's optimal. And, and by the way, typically the right in most political spectra the right is the uh, slower, please, because it says that which we've been doing for the longest is better. And the left typically says faster, please, because we want to change the human condition for the better. So I'm going to say that somewhere in the middle, the left can have the electoral system that gives the franchise to minorities, and the right can have it be trustworthy. But if, if we don't pace the rate of election reform adoption, and this is why it's so scary to make changes within 100 days of an election, then the risk registry becomes dynamic or unknown. You can't tell the big rocks. New rocks are coming in at a pace you can't predict, and they're changing size, to mix metaphors a little bit. Uh, Rob, does that resonate with you? One of the risk mitigation factors that is present is a very simple one. There are 50 states. There are thousands of voting precincts. They all do it slightly differently, right? So the myriad of variability of the basic same process goes in favor of I can't I, somebody can't can't mess with all of them right uh, or actually even even a, a small number of them is almost requires armies of people so so to me the the you know staying inside the general system 
and and you know balancing the lean forward and i'll go back to digitally voting to the lean back paper voting right um is really how we move forward here because at, at this point change is bad i, I would agree with with sam i change is the worst thing that could happen right now because the last thing you want to do is have a registered voter american citizen standing there going now what do i do and and that's not what we want we want you've got to be able to walk through that pathway uh and whether your state requires that you produce whatever documentation that that says you're a registered voter or not and because some do and some don't but you walk through the portal you cast your vote off you go just like you did the last time and, and that's, I think, very important to ensure the sanctity of the process so that, you know, the, the risk in the voter's mind is mitigated. Some of the biggest challenges we have are basic nuts and bolts of, okay, where are all the volunteers that are going to show up at the I think Maryland just came out with, we're doing uh, polling centers, not polling stations, uh, Governor Hope has said, uh, I don't have enough, I don't have enough volunteers to, to man all the myriad of sites that I typically own, all the elementary schools, if you will. Um, so I'm going to do centers and I'm going to ask everybody to go to the centers. Well, from a COVID perspective, you go, I guess I get that. But now I got a bigger line at a more centralized and a drive. Um, so it, it, there's a balance here. There's a balance between the digitization of voting and the reality of COVID right now. I, I note that even though we're a huge country with thousands or tens of thousands of voting precincts, that in fact, the number that actually matter in turning an election is, is much, much smaller than that, maybe uh, a couple hundred um, that actually are going to count. You know, I, I'm in Belmont, Massachusetts, where a deep blue town and a deep blue state there, you know, there is no question about the outcome of the vote in Belmont. And I don't expect that the Russians are going to be very interested in, uh, you know, our, our voting precincts. But there are counties that, uh, you know, maybe were Obama to Trump counties uh, or precincts that um, would seem to be targets where if you if you change the outcome slightly, um, it can tip it can tip the uh, result of the election itself. So it would seem that the risk for a given community or even a precinct might be very, very different based on, you know, what, what the behavior has been in past elections. Well, and I think, again, the, the data that represents those um, communities and precincts that are in, you know, you've heard the term swing states, but there are swing precincts and swing groupings of precincts. That yeah, within those states, a, right. That they go a certain direction. Uh, they are the recipient of a lot of the misinformation campaigns. You know, if you sat back and looked at where are, where are our friends from, let's say, Russia and China and North Korea sending their messages, uh, well, you can, you can look and, and you can see uh, that, that they do have an effect, unfortunately. And so it is a, the thing that I feel best about with this upcoming election is there seems to be enough energy around making a selection of who you think is the right, you know, uh, candidate to, to win the presidency, that they will go, right? That there's a, I, I'm going, period. Um, I got to be able to cast my vote one way or the other. I'm going to vote. And, 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 and that's helpful here. Um, so turnout, I, I turn out one way or the other should not be that, that big of an issue. 
The downside is, will the results hold up to analysis and scrutiny, right? Whether it's digital or not, that's the that's the challenge. And I think you know, if I'm if I'm Federal Election Commission or I'm a state uh, uh, Secretary of State because I run the voting process for my state, I'm out wargaming this. I'm out you know, uh, dry running um, these various scenarios that Sam was mentioning so that I have a, a really good understanding of what I think is going to happen on November 3rd in my state. Or if I've elected to start uh, the mail-in process uh, early, you know, do, do I have the ability and surety to deliver that outcome? You know, either way. Well, look, one of the, one of the benefits we've had <clears throat> from a terrible, otherwise terrible thing around COVID is many states have established official news portals, right? Here's how the government will get news to you. And that can be done ahead of time. By the way, the bad guys can also set up fake news distribution mechanisms in the same way and relay as a, as a, as a, as a person in the middle, really, to get that information out. But I, I do worry a little bit, Rob, I think, um, about people's concern for safety. There's a, there's a sort of hierarchy of needs uh, where voting probably comes pretty high over, you know, like maybe once my physical safety is okay, then voting is important. As opposed to, for many people, the way that they're going to improve their physical safety is is by voting and trying to change the election. I, I but I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out people trying to target lower in the hierarchy of needs in Maslow's Maslow speak and say, if I can if I can threaten you, I can get you to not vote. Um, and and that's that's so on the one hand you've got misinformation disinformation to change your vote, and then you can target those precincts that uh, and counties that that Rob's talking about and say. And I'll try and scare some of you from going uh, or maybe have one block of voters turn up in protest not wearing masks. What does that do to the, to, to, to the line of people outside the polling station? Yeah, and, I, and, I, and, I, and Sam, I agree. Uh, uh, but I think uh, the pressure on the states to offer alternatives to in-person voting um, you know, is, is, is manifesting itself. The decisions are being made now so that everybody's aware how do I vote in my precinct? Do I roll down the street to the to the uh, elementary school like I do, um, or do I request my mail-in ballot? How, when do I have to do that by? When do I have to cast it by to have it count? Things like that. So, I think I think the ROI, you know, if you're the governor or you're the secretary of state who's running that process, you know, you're a busy person right now, making sure that you enable, to your point. Um, a hybrid, just like we're doing with almost everything that's in the COVID world, there's a hybrid approach to moving forward. And 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 I go back to, you know, as a as a cybersecurity guy, these results all become digital at some point, right? Because there's no pile of a single pile of ballots, right? They all become digital, they're forward to a central location, and then we declare winners. So so that's the part that I think is going to be the interesting transition. And then monitoring that network, quote unquote, that ecosystem for bad things that are going on, right? That's really important that, uh, and, and, and I know Sam's been around world-class hackers as I have. Uh, most of the world-class hackers leave no footprints. You just don't know. Um, and that's the, that's the scary part. There's, there's another parallel with COVID, which is just as we all went home and all of our baselines changed, and now by the way, we're going from, you know, work at the office to work at home, we're, we're going to work from anywhere. So too, we don't have it. We don't know what it's like when a majority of people vote by mail, or even a significantly large minority. 
So it's time to start really paying attention to this election and going forward to build up baselines. We've got to build the knowledge because our wisdom in being able to spot, it's all, it all looks like not a needle in a haystack, it's a needle in a stack of needles, right? And some of the early trial balloons, like in New York State, have been very messy, you know, very worrying. There's a lot of reason to be worried about how it's going to work at scale, because clearly in the past, you know, vote by mail or absentee votes have been a small percentage of, of all the votes. So final question to both of you. I'm going to ask you to put on your I'm president of the United States pretend hat. You know, if you were to spearhead an effort to remake the voting infrastructure and voting process in the United States to address some of the issues that we've raised um, and also, you know, I guess, preserve what works, obviously uh, increase the integrity and uh, believability of the vote. What, what types of things would you recommend? What would be top practice, on your practice, list? practice. I would say postmaster general, you need to fix these problems. That has to be a priority. It should not be an issue of budget, right? I realize that the post office is in some financial straits. And I would say secretaries of state and going down, game it out now. Make sure you know what you're going to do and what your contingencies are. And again, practice, practice, practice. Make sure your, your, your news, that you know how you get news to the public. You know the conditions under which you're going to postpone an election, for instance that you you test this as much as possible and you learn from each other because uh it's frankly it's um it's vital to the republic and it is within a certain group uh, a certain group of people's power to have a massive effect here Le- leadership is defined qu- quite simply as the ability to make a, a large group of people achieve a result that doesn't mean how you order or manage or do things but the result we need is a, an election that has integrity and we know that the people have been heard so let's make sure that happens. Yeah, no, I uh, we're we're reading off the same notes. I I think that uh, Sam's right. This this secured this this election is is we're round in third base, right? And and whatever we've done, we have to put the final touches on because the scale of what we designed, this process change, this accommodation of COVID as the main instrument of change to this election. This is not the 2016 election, right? This is the 2016 election, except, as Sam said, somebody may think it's not safe to roll down to the elementary school, right, just to stand in line. Um, so, so how do we, as he said, how do we practice that? How do we do that in 90 days, right? We're 90 days away, actually inside 90 days, um, away from doing that. Now, as you move into the future, you know, I, I think there are there are lots of things that could be examined to be determined to be effective. You know, how what's needed for digitally voting? What what actually is needed? The national ID card with some sort of PKI on it. Is there something that enables a sure digital vote? Um, and, and I'm not saying we have that today because I, I you know six years ago I lived I lived this discussion and it certainly didn't exist then. And frankly, the, the election process has not really moved forward uh, very much. You know, I, I think Florida went from the, hey, we have hanging chads, to we went digital, then cyber came in, and we backed out and we went back to paper, right? So, so I think whatever we do, as, as Sam was saying, today we're, we're rounding third base. You cannot make dramatic changes to the process because you have to educate the voter on what's going to change. And then you're going to make sure that the back end piece is really secure because if you got the front end right, now I've got to get the back end tight. Um, as if it was a classified network uh, that I used to uh, deal with in DOD, 
I'm pretty sure that the classified networks are tight. Um, and I know that, that um, we're not in that space here, but I know that I have to have that kind of confidence in that result to then make this next uh, evidence of democracy stick. I mean, it's interesting. Intel had a little like a uh, journalist get together a, a week or so ago and they had a bunch of their executives on. I asked them, like, do you know, do you think it's possible that we could in the United States go, you know, design a completely secure digital voting system for all citizens? You could just vote electronically. And they were like two and two a one. We're like, absolutely. You know, like, you know, this is, you know, in the United States, we've got the best, you know, technology companies and experts in the world. hundred percent. We could design a secure electronic voting system. Um, and, you know, I would tend to agree. We've got RSA, we've got Microsoft, I, I don't and like Google, that. I don't and, like you know. Uh, I'm like squirming. I'm squirming because I can't but, think of a but, completely secure anything. I just, I just I can't. Well, Good enough? Yes. Good enough? Yes. But. but but as with everything, Sam, our system right now is not you're right, secure. You're right. It doesn't right? have to be perfectly secure. So I just take out the completely and change it to a secure enough. Okay, well, the, I again, see margin of error. It's it's is, within is the tolerable. Yeah, it's within the tolerance of the current yeah. process, right? Because as, as you right. Uh, right. Uh, allude to, Sam, the current process is what ninety nine percent accurate. Uh, let's just throw a number out there. So so if you're that accurate mm -hmm. or more, what's not to like? Now, getting people to embrace a new process that could be where the difference lies. And where are the few thousand right. votes that lead to dozens of electoral college votes? And that is a tiny tolerance, right? right? So right. It, it, let's, let's not forget that. The, the question is, right, and the question is what societal changes need to happen to enable that system? And I think you raised some of them, Rob, you know, around di digital identity and so on. Some of, the, some of the infrastructure you would need to build to support that in a freedom-loving, you know, individualistic country like America, like a digital national ID, are very hard sells. Um, and, and But until you do those, until you do one, right. you really can't do right. the other. Uh, right. The potential exists for us to have a better process if we do this right, but it's not going to happen fast. And we need to we need to take it in small steps and really absorb them because the pay, we're certainly not going to be doing it at Silicon Valley pace. And we need we need to do these things in the right time. And because, by the way, two years after this, there'll be the midterms. So, you know, you've got a very narrow window to make progress yeah. so that we should be we should be doing this and we should yeah. be testing the methods uh, with the freedom of yeah, time. Yeah, the, the waves keep rolling in. The elections keep rolling in. Right, right. Yeah, I, Rob? I, I would just add uh, that, you know, I, as, as Sam alluded to, we need a sufficiently secure process that enables the capture of the votes, that, a process that's resilient that enables democracy and, and its pinnacle process of freedom of expression and vote uh, to, to occur. I think the information warfare that's going on right now, um, I know DOD and DHS are both, U.S. Cyber Command and DHS CISA are both working actively to combat that information warfare campaign. This is probably the first election I think, and maybe maybe Sam can counter me, but I think this is the first election where the secretaries of state are going to stare really hard at how would I do this differently, right? Where do I bring in innovation? Where do I bring in change that is um, embraced by the general U.S. population? 
How do I offer a diversity of voting methodologies that are all secure? This is not the first COVID. We may see this kind of thing again. So this is not a one-time, it's only November 2020 that has this issue. I think it'd be interesting to see how much redesign goes in after the results are tabulated because that process still has to be absolutely tight enough to support the election. But I think following the election and, and, and the result, we have to sort of stare at this and go, how do I take this and move forward? Rob Carey of RSA, Sam Curry, for reason, thank you guys both so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you, thank you for having us. Robert Carey is Vice President and General Manager of Global Public Sector Solutions at RSA. Sam Curry is the Chief Security Officer at the firm Cyber Reason. They were here to talk to us about securing the 2020 presidential election in the United States. You've been listening to a Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast sponsored by RSA Security. RSA offers business-driven security solutions that provide organizations with a unified approach to managing digital risk that hinges on integrated visibility, automated insights, and coordinated actions. RSA solutions are designed to effectively detect and respond to advanced attacks, manage user access control, and reduce business risk, fraud, and cybercrime. RSA protects millions of users around the world and helps more than 90% of the Fortune 500 companies thrive and continuously adapt to transformational change. For more information, visit rsa.com.